Let's pray before we open up God's word together. Lord Jesus, you are the, not only the crucified Savior who shed his blood for sinners, we're so joyful and thankful today that you're also the resurrected Savior who triumphed over death, and you will return one day to bring us home to glory. Lord, we are your servants, we are your children, and we come to you today knowing that we need to meet with you in your word. We need to be fed, we need to be instructed, we need to be encouraged. We need to have our eyes taken off the things of earth and have our eyes placed squarely on you. So we pray now that you would help us and minister to us by the power of your spirit. We ask this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Please open to Luke chapter 2. We're going to continue our study in Luke's gospel, and we've come today to the birth of Jesus. And I wish that you could hear this story today as if you were hearing it for the first time. This is probably the most well-known passage in the Bible for many people. I mean, there's well-known verses like John 3.16, but in terms of a well-known chapter and a well-known story, it's hard to beat Luke chapter 2. But I wish that you weren't so familiar with it this morning for this reason. If we could hear it without all the baggage and the clutter of holiday music and Christmas pageants and nativity decorations... I think you might be able to see it with fresh eyes. It's so easy for us to fall into sort of this familiar rhythm every December of what's one of these most well-known texts in the Bible. And what starts to happen is we can even sort of supply images and details that actually aren't in the text. Maybe you've seen it on a greeting card or a Christmas play, or it's in one of your favorite songs. But it's actually not in the Bible. But we're so familiar with this, we, can, we just sort of add in all those details as we're reading. But I'm going to ask you to, to do your best to set aside uh, all of those things, some of the extras, and try to encounter this story in this text, and try to receive in it what Luke is intending to give us. But just to situate this birth narrative in the larger work, because you know most of the time in December, we jump into Matthew 1, Luke chapter 2, and Isaiah chapter 7, Isaiah chapter 9, and we sort of patch together these things, and that's not wrong. But remember, this birth narrative of Jesus comes to us in the flow of a larger work that Luke is authoring. And his aim, according to chapter 1, verse 1, is to give Theophilus an organized account of Jesus' life and ministry. It's a historical work, and that's why Luke is going back to the beginning. He naturally starts with the birth stories of John and Jesus. And Luke shows us that in these births, there is great joy and great anticipation about what God is going to do through them. And what God is going to do through them is what's contained in the rest of Luke's gospel. John will prepare the way, and Jesus will fulfill God's plan, God's promise of salvation. So Luke chapter 2 is not just a sentimental story about a cute baby and you have an adoring donkey and a, an adoring cow that are sort of looking over their shoulder and, you know, this soft glow coming down from on high. No, this story in Luke chapter 2 is about the sovereign working of God in history for his glory and for our joy as he sends his son into the world to save us. It's a historical reality, and this is a earthy, gritty, real-life story. Mary's labor and delivery was just like your labor and delivery, ladies. It was exhausting. It was painful. It was bloody. The shepherds were blue-collar workers with all the grime of the field and the animals on them, not freshly ironed Christmas pageant costumes. And in the middle of all of this dirt and blood and grime and just survival that's going on in this story, in the middle of all of this is glory. There's this army of angels that are thundering praise in the heavens as the Son of God steps onto the stage of the world. And he does so in utter and complete helplessness as a baby. This story should be striking to us, startling to us, and there is eternal theological truth in it that is meant for your joy. So we're all familiar with this story. We know what happened. The baby was born in Bethlehem. The angels sang. 
and the shepherds came to see. But what did this birth accomplish? What does it mean? What are the results of the birth of the Savior? I want to show you this morning three results of the birth of Christ that we draw from this very familiar but very important story. And the first is this. Number one, the Savior's birth fulfills the sovereign plan and promise of God. This is not just a sentimental story. It's not just a happy, you know, bust out the the cigars and celebrate they have a son. This is the fulfillment of God's sovereign plan. Look in verses 1 through 7. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. The God that we worship is the Lord of history. In chapter 1, Luke tells Theophilus, if you remember, that he's compiling this careful account of the things that have been accomplished among us, which raises the question, what are the things and who is accomplishing them? Well, the things are the things that God promised, and the one who's accomplishing them is God. He is the Lord of history, and he's fulfilling his sovereign plan. So Luke sets the stage here by pointing out how God's hand was at work at every level. He shows us the wide-angle lens. He's talking about world powers here. Caesar Augustus, the Roman emperor, saying that all the world, all the known world, the, the empire of Rome, that all of them should be registered. Then he zooms in from that wide-angle view, and he focuses in on local authorities. Quirinius was the the regional governor. And then he focuses in even more closely at the personal level. Two people's lives. Joseph, who is of the house and lineage of David, and his his betrothed wife, Mary. They They were legally bound together, but they had not consummated their marriage. Yet she's with child from the Holy Spirit. So Luke masterfully shows God's at work at the world stage level, at the local governmental level, and also very personally in these two people's lives. And he begins this birth account not by saying, as some might expect, once upon a time. That's not how this story starts. It starts in those days. This is history. This is not a myth. And these are literal historical political figures that he's making reference to. This helps us narrow down the, the, the rough date and, and the season of time in which Jesus was born. He makes mention here of Caesar Augustus. This is the title for a man who was known as Octavian. He was the first Roman emperor who ushered in this golden age for Rome. And he often would use things like the census to figure out how many people he had so he knew how much to charge them for taxes. This is basic math. So these census-type operations would be conducted every several years. Luke makes mention of Quirinius, who was a notable uh, soldier who was very skilled administratively, who apparently oversaw at least least two of these censuses. And Luke says that this was the first, uh, the first registration, the first of these censuses when Quirinius was governor in Syria. We know that the second census under his, um, his governmental oversight was in 6 AD, and that one was met with a lot of resistance. It actually re- led to military conflict. And Luke says it wasn't that one, it was the first one, the one that was smooth sailing where, where there were no real big problems. So we're told that Joseph and Mary, at this point in time, they traveled. Verse 4, they went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David. This would have been about a 70-mile journey. Uh, To put it in perspective for you, it'd be like walking from here to St. Joseph, Missouri. Maybe you want to go watch, you know, Chief's training camp. You just walk. That's a little bit of a hike. But that's about how far it was for them, about 70 miles. Bethlehem was where Joseph's family was from, because he was from the tribe of Judah, descended from David. Uh, Bethlehem is about six miles outside of Jerusalem. So it's very close. It's a small town, 
a little, not, not a suburb, it's separate, but it is very nearby to Jerusalem. And usually when you see the terminology city of David, usually that refers to Jerusalem. David um, conquered that city, drove out the Jebusites, set up his throne there, and reigned from Jerusalem during his kingdom. So usually when you see the city of David in scripture, it's talking about Jerusalem. But here, Bethlehem is referred to as the city of David, which is technically true as well because Bethlehem is where David was from. Remember, he was a shepherd boy and he was called in by Saul. He ended up fighting giants and becoming a general in the army and eventually was anointed king of Israel. So Bethlehem was David's hometown. So it's rightly titled here, the city of David. And while they were there, it says... Verse 6, the time came for her to give birth. Now, this means much, much more than just Mary hit 40 weeks gestation and she came full term. When Luke says that the time came for her to give birth, this little phrase is packed with divine sovereignty. This is the time that God had appointed This is the place that God had appointed for the birth of his Messiah. I love what Paul writes in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. He says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. Everything that God is doing, he is doing perfectly according to his plan and to his decree. So why is the time... Why does the time for birth have to coincide with traveling to Bethlehem? As many of you know, this was done to fulfill the prophecy found in Micah chapter 5. Micah 5 verse 2 says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, there was technically two Bethlehems, and Ephrathah was the old name for one of them, so Micah is specifying, For you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. Just a small little town that doesn't even register on most maps. Micah says, from you shall come forth, for me, he's speaking for God, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. The prophetic promise was that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, and he would be the son of David, and he would rule over Israel as God's Messiah. And so God moved them at the right time to Bethlehem so that this promise would be fulfilled and fulfilled in such a way that there could be no coincidence, no mistaking that this was obviously God's Messiah, born of a virgin and miraculously moved to Bethlehem because God's the one pulling the strings, even for the emperor of Rome. All of this shows God's complete providential control of world history. He used an unwitting Roman emperor and he used that man's desire to raise taxes and he used the basic political machinery of a census to move things into the place for the birth of Christ, to bring about the fulfillment of his promise. There's a touch of irony here that Octavian, who was the king who brought about the Pax Romana, this Roman age of peace, that he was actually simply upon in the hand of God, to set the table for the true king who would bring about real peace, peace with God through the gospel. So this is a perfect plan brought about at the exact time in the exact way that God desired. And in verse 7, we're given the very simple details that she gave birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son. Mary had other children later. She wrapped him in swaddling cloths, And laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. There's remarkably little detail given to us about this birth. It leaves me wanting to know more. But I think the simplicity is on purpose. We should be struck here with the humility of Christ. Though he is truly God, though he is the king of kings, he enters the world with no fanfare. And his birth is like the birth of any other baby. He's wrapped in swaddling cloths. That's what they did with every baby. That was nothing unique or special. They wrapped him up, keeps their arms and legs tucked close. They sleep better that way. They stay warm. All of you moms have done that. Usually we have these little onesies that kind of, you know, button and snap. But that's what they were doing back then. It's just a normal baby, a normal birth, just like all babies were were treated in those days. But he wasn't just any baby. 
He's the Son of God. Philippians 2.6 tells us that though Jesus, the Christ, was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And being found in the likeness of man, he humbled himself. There is humility in his birth. John chapter 1 verse 10 says, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He's the creator. He's the one through whom all things were made that were made. And it's a quiet, anonymous, simple birth in a small town. Two people who were far from home. Being far from home, they're staying in an overcrowded little town. It says they laid him in a manger, which is just a feeding trough. This would not be the last time that Jesus has to make do with less than normal creature comforts. Luke 9, 58, Jesus would later say, foxes have holes and the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. It started early for Jesus, right off the bat. He's humble and foregoing many of the normal comforts that people, <clears throat> that people would enjoy, despite the fact that he is the son of David. He's the king of kings. He is God in the flesh, the word made flesh. Because of this reference to the manger, we often have this imagery of them being in a stable, and that may be true, but the text does not actually say that they're in a stable. It says there was no room for them in the inn. So we have to say, well, what is the, this word for inn? Um, the, the Greek word for inn that's used here is not the same word that's used for a business like a hotel that you might think of. Someplace you can go and pay a fee and check in and rent out a room. Um, it's actually this word that's translated inn is used to describe often the guest room of a house. It's used that way later in Luke's gospel. Sometimes it's refused to describe a public shelter that was used by travelers on a first-come-first-serve basis, sort of like a truck stop that might have some showers and a locker room. It was that sort of a deal. So the image of a callous innkeeper who's turning away a woman who's full term and about to go into labor, maybe that happened. That's somewhat speculation. We're not told that that was the case. A manger definitely would be found in a stable, so it's possible they were staying in a barn. Oftentimes, though, the stable would actually be attached to the house. Uh, the houses in those days had a courtyard in the center, and the house would be built around this courtyard. And one of those courtyard walls was often a half wall, a half wall that looked over into the stable, which was attached to the house. That way you could feed your animals and give them some water without having to even leave your house. So it's very possible that Joseph and Mary were in a stable and sleeping in a stable. They also could have been camping out in the courtyard and sort of, you know, reaching over the wall and using whatever was close at hand to lay their newborn son in. There are some ancient accounts that even say Jesus was born in a cave that was used as a stable to house livestock. We're really not sure. So I'm not trying to say that you shouldn't set up your little nativity scene on the mantle this Christmas. If, go for it. There's nothing wrong with that. But we just need to understand that we're not even given that much detail. We're simply told that there wasn't a room for them to stay in. So they're making do somehow, whether they're camping out in the courtyard or literally sleeping in the stable. And they have nowhere to lay their newborn child as they sort of get cleaned up and catch their breath. So they lay him in a manger, in a simple feeding trough. The simple, simple facts are clear. Jesus is born in humble simplicity. But he's born in God's perfect time, in the place that God appointed because of God's sovereign direction of history. All of this, a fulfillment of God's promise. The Savior's birth is a fulfillment of God's sovereign plan. But secondly, the Savior's birth, this is where we'll spend most of our time this morning, the Savior's birth brings indescribable joy to man and indescribable glory to God. The Savior's birth brings joy to man, a joy that is without description, but it also brings glory to God. That is the result of this birth that we find in verses 8 through 14. It says that in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. 
And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. We'll stop there. Following this very simple description of the birth of the Messiah, the scene shifts from the stable and the manger to outside of Bethlehem, to a group of shepherds. Uh, because the, the temple, Israel's temple was in Jerusalem, the two-mile radius surrounding Jerusalem was designated that all the, the flocks and the livestock that were kept within that radius, they were designated for the sacrificial system. So it's very likely that these shepherds are watching over animals that were being bred and raised to be used for temple sacrifice. And if that's the case, how fitting is that? How fitting is that? That the first people to hear about the Lamb of God coming into the world, the first people to go look on that Lamb would be the ones that are out looking over sheep, watching over their flock by night. It is they who receive word that the perfect and final sacrifice had come into the world. These shepherds are an unlikely bunch to hear this news. In, in this day, the shepherds were kind of a low class, and they were despised by many. They were usually poor, and they were unable to keep the ceremonial law. You think about it, they're out in the field, they're living with animals. All the cleanliness rules were pretty hard to keep up with. And the Sabbath was something that they didn't exactly observe. So they were considered unclean. On top of that, many shepherds had a reputation for robbing and stealing. You're out in the middle of nowhere. Nobody likes you. You're kind of kept out at arm's length by everyone. And then there's this lonely traveler who's walking through your field. He's got a really nice coat. Sounds like his wallet is jingling a little bit with some coins. Maybe we should give ourselves a raise. They had a reputation for robbing passersby, stealing from farms. So shepherds were often not trusted. In fact, um, first century Jewish law actually prohibited shepherds from being credible witnesses in a court of law. They couldn't testify because they weren't considered trustworthy. But God chose these shepherds to be the first witnesses who would testify of the Savior's birth. That tells you something about God, doesn't it? As Jesus would later say, quoting Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You see, Jesus came into the world for people who were unclean, People who were despised, people who were needy, people who were outsiders. God didn't pick these shepherds randomly. He did it on purpose. Even though society looked down on shepherds, God did not. And in fact, in Scripture, we see uh, the shepherding profession actually receiving a lot of honor. Moses was a shepherd. King David famously was a shepherd. And most importantly, God describes himself in Psalm 23 as the shepherd. Jesus, in John chapter 10, would describe himself as the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. So these shepherds are out in the field. They're keeping watch over their flock by night. And look what happens in verse 9. It's glory. Glory. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Now, this is the beauty of studying this text sort of in connection with all the texts that come before and after it, instead of just by itself. This is the third angelic announcement, in just in the last few passages we've seen. And the, the angel made an announcement to Zechariah, he made an announcement to Mary, now he makes an announcement to the shepherds. And Luke sets the stage into the darkness of night, the brightness of God's glory shines. In Scripture, glory is often described as a radiant light. We see God's glory in the Old Testament as a pillar of fire that lights up the night sky, guiding the children of Israel in the Exodus. We see the glory of God blazing at the top of Mount Sinai as God himself comes down to give his people the law. 
Later, the, the shining face of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration will be described as shining brighter than the sun. And it overwhelms these shepherds. As this glorious light fills the sky and shines around them, they are filled with great fear, just like Zechariah was and just like Mary was. When the angel shows up, they're afraid. And so in typical fashion, what does the angel say? He says, fear not. And he tells them why. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Good news of not just joy, but great joy for all the people. He says, don't be afraid. I haven't come to judge you. I haven't come to kill you. I haven't come to pronounce God's wrath upon you. I've come to give you good news. The word for good news here is the same word we get our word gospel from. It's euangelizomai. It's I'm preaching good news to you. Uh, this word is one of Luke's favorite words. He uses it more than any other New Testament author. This good news is a message of hope, a message of life, a message of rescue for them, a message of salvation. And this good news, he tells them, brings not just joy, but great joy. And again, Luke's been hammering on this. He, he, he tells, that, tells Zechariah that many will rejoice at the birth of his son. We see Mary rejoicing in what God has done for her. Her heart rejoices in God. Luke is hammering on this, that as God provides salvation through his son, it brings great joy to those who are saved. Why such joy? Verse 11, here's the heart of the matter. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. A Savior has been born. And he says, this Savior has been born unto you. He doesn't just say the Savior has been born. He doesn't even say the Savior has been born for all. This is a personal message that he looks these shepherds in the eye and says the Savior has been born for you. And this Savior is Christ the Lord. This is the only time in the New Testament we have all three of these words together. Savior, Christ, and Lord. All three right here. Jesus is the one who is Lord. He has all authority. He is the King of kings, and he is God in the flesh. He is rightly called Lord. He is also the Christ. He is the anointed one. And the angel sort of hints at this. Unto you has been born this day in the city of David. The Christ, the Messiah, the son of David is here. He has come. God is keeping his promise. And he's the Savior, Christ the Lord, the son of David. What has he come to save them from? This is an important question and one that we need to ask today. What do people need to be saved from? Do we just need to be saved from an unfulfilled life? Do we need, do we need to be saved from uh, our anxieties and our fears? Do we need to be saved from, from purposeless, purposelessness, meaninglessness, well, all those things are resolved in Christ, but we need to be saved from our sins. That's why Jesus came. The angel told Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You see, that's the problem that we have. It's the problem the shepherds had. It's the problem Joseph and Mary had. And it's the problem that you and I have, that we are sinners, which means that we are guilty that we deserve God's judgment. The shepherds were afraid when they saw a holy angel. And they should have been because they knew they were unholy. And when the unholy comes into contact with the holy, it's dangerous. It's devastating. It will undo us. And all of us have that sickness. All of us have that sin deep down inside of us. From the oldest of us even to the little babies, we all got it. We all have it. The little babies crying and the cranky old people that are tired of it. All of us have sin in our hearts, right? Here's the good news of great joy. A savior has been born. That's the answer. That's the answer to the sin in our hearts. Jesus said in Luke chapter 19:10, "The Son of man came to seek and to save the lost. He is a savior." A savior for sinners. 
a savior for the lost. And he is a savior, according to the angel, who has come for all the people. Now, I'm going to get a little technical here. All the people here, the Greek term here is not plural, it's singular. So it's not for all the peoples. This is not a promise that Jesus has come for all the families of the earth and for all the nations. That's true, but we get that from other passages. He has the nation Israel in view here. The people would have been a specific people, a particular people, the people that God had promised to send his Messiah to, Israel. Later, this will be expanded to the Gentiles. If you flip over to chapter 2, verse 32, there's an old man named Simeon. And he worships God. It says in verse 32 that this child is a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Simeon gets it. Yes, he is for the people of Israel, glory for Israel. He's also more than that. He's for all the peoples. But specifically here in what the angel is saying, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And he is a Savior for all the people meaning God's chosen people, Israel. This is the one that they had been waiting on. This was their Messiah, and he had come. He gives them a sign. Verse 12, this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in manger. Zechariah had been given a sign. He was deaf and mute for nine months until his wife gave birth. Mary was given a sign. Her cousin Elizabeth, in her old age, was pregnant with a child. She went very quickly to go see. That would have strengthened her faith in the word of God through the angel. These shepherds are also given a sign. They would find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. They would have known what to look for. The swaddling cloths was not that unique, but it meant that this was a very brand new baby. But lying in a manger definitely would have been unique. And this unusual sign would confirm the angelic message. But then we come to this incredible scene. And I love this part. Verse 13, suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And again, this is not your average Christmas play. Don't think of 12 middle schoolers with like bed sheets wrapped around them standing at the back of the stage. This is a multitude of the heavenly host. This is an innumerable assembly of the armies of heaven. And it filled the sky. A multitude of the heavenly host. You know, Zechariah, once his tongue was loosed, what did he do? He sang, right? We have this song of Zechariah. What did Mary do after after hearing this message from the angel and meeting with her cousin Elizabeth, Mary sang as well. Once again, following the message of the angel, following the giving of the sign, we have a song. And this time it's the angels singing, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And it's really amazing here, this heavenly host, the word host indicates an army, but this army is not gathered to wage war. They're not banging their shields and giving the war cry. They're declaring peace, peace among those with whom he is pleased. So we kind of ask the question, why is there this scene? Why do all these angels burst in and cry out and worship God? And why does God open the eyes of these shepherds to behold this incredible scene? I think it's because such a moment as this, the announcement that the Savior had come into the world, who is Christ the Lord, That announcement cannot be met with silence. It demands praise. It demands praise. The angels worship and give glory to God because he is fulfilling his promise. All the promises of the Old Testament are being woven together into the birth of this son who will bring all of God's plans to fruition. The angels were seeing, lived out in real time, what Proverbs 30 verse 5 says, that every word of God proves true. That's why they're worshiping. Glory to God in the highest. He's doing what he promised. They worship him because this is a step towards victory and triumph. The angels rejoice because they see that God is on the move. He is not going to let his creation languish in sin and corruption forever. God himself is entering the world. And he's going to set right what went wrong. He's going to save his people from their sins. He's also going to step on the snake. 
and crush his head. And the angels are worshiping and rejoicing because God is on the move. It's happening. The angels worship and give glory to God because of the marvelous humility of Christ and the mystery of the incarnation. We wrestle all the time with trying to understand, trying to explain how can Jesus be fully God and fully man. And there's certain truths we can affirm because the Bible says them, but it's bigger than what can fit in our brains. And I think the angels marvel at it as well. They're marveling that the eternal second person of the Godhead, the one that from the moment of their creation they have worshiped and glorified, that he just took on human flesh and became a baby. And they know why. And they're amazed by it. The mystery of the incarnation moves them to worship and praise. Wonder of wonders, the word has become flesh. He's born of a virgin, and he did it in a stable and was laid in a manger, no less. They are astonished at his humility. And so they glorify God for what he's doing. Won't be the last time that Jesus will demonstrate humility either. It's kind of interesting, his life begins with animals in a stable, and it will end with criminals on a cross. And the angels look on this with wonder, and they glorify him because he's doing all of this, fulfilling God's promises, entering into the world to engage in combat with the enemy, and ultimately to rescue his people, to save them from their sins. And so they worship glory to God in the highest. Listen, God deserves glory for all that he does to bring about our salvation. This salvation brings great joy to sinners, and it brings indescribable glory to God. He is infinitely wise and infinitely sovereign, and he knew that in all the possible universes, all the possible storylines that could exist, that this was the best way to magnify his glory, his grace, his power, his wisdom, and that this was the best way to give his people the deepest and most lasting joy. And the angels get it. Glory to God in the highest. I want to look at the second phrase they sang. On earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. If you have the uh, New American Standard or the NIV, you have something similar there. But this is very different than what many of us are probably familiar with in the old King James Version. Peace on earth, what's the next part? Goodwill toward men, right? And we sing that in some of our songs. It's unfortunate that that's sort of burned into our brains because it's not the best translation. That gives the indication that the birth of Christ is sort of this generic sort of like um, um, expression of, of kindness towards anyone and everyone. And there is something of that in the birth of Christ. But there's more than that here. There's more than that. And I think that uh, the ESV, which I'm preaching out of, and some of those other translations, I think they get it right when they translate this. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. This phrase, those with whom he is pleased, is actually one word in the Greek language, and it's a technical term. And it's a term that describes those who are recipients of grace. Peace among those, the ones that God is pouring out his grace on. Peace among those, you could put it this way, that God loves. Peace towards those that are going to experience the salvation that Jesus is bringing. It is not a generic, impersonal sort of gesture of goodwill towards all men. It is a specific act of love to provide salvation for those that God loves, those whom he has chosen. This is specific and personal. It communicates not just potential grace, but personal grace. It is not indiscriminate. It is purposeful. We find this same word that's translated here, those with whom he is pleased. This idea of his pleasure is important. We find this in other texts. Luke 10, 21. Jesus says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. That's the same word, gracious will, that God has decided to bless people with this grace. And it's hidden from some, and it's revealed to others. What's the difference? It's God's gracious, sovereign choice. 
We find the same word in Philippians 2.13, that it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This indicates God's design, his desire, his purpose to accomplish something specific in us. We find the same word in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5 and verse 9. Ephesians 1, 5 says, He predestined us as believers for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. That word purpose is the same word here that's translated pleasure. Those, those with whom he is pleased. This is God's sovereign grace. Ephesians 1, 9 making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. This is a statement of grace and choice and sovereign benevolence as the angels say, peace upon those with whom he is pleased. Remember earlier we talked about Mary when the angel said, greetings, O favored one. She is a recipient of grace, one who has been selected by God for this great privilege. That's the same thing that the angels are singing. They rejoice in this. That peace comes to those who are favored by God. Peace comes to those whom he loves, those upon whom he pours out his grace. This is why the angels are rejoicing. Not that God is just generically kind to the world, but that God saves sinners. I'm sure you all are familiar with Luke 15, 7, where Jesus says, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. I mean, the angels celebrate when one sinner gets saved. So no wonder this whole multitude of angels is rejoicing and giving glory to God because they see that Jesus is coming to give salvation not just to one sinner, but to all who will ever believe. That's a big deal. They saw what God was doing, and so they give him glory. The birth of Jesus brings indescribable joy to sinners like us. We're like the shepherds. We don't deserve it. We're sinful. We need it. And God comes to us. And the result of this grace is that he receives ultimate glory. Revelation 5.12 gives us a scene, a future scene of heaven where the multitude sings with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. It leads to glory. So put all of this back together. What's the result of Jesus' birth? Indescribable joy for man and indescribable glory to God. The shepherds are taking all of this in. And they realize, okay, if this is what God is doing, then he definitely deserves praise. They understand what the angels are doing. And if this is how the angels are responding, that they're celebrating this, then we should be celebrating it too. And so they quickly go to see the child. That leads us to our final point. Verses 15 through 20, the Savior's birth evokes various responses in the heart. It brings out various responses from the heart. Verse 15, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. So following this, the shepherds hurry to act on the message they've received. Bethlehem's a small town. They're able to quickly find out, hey, you know where there's any newborn babies at? And in a small town, everybody knows what's going on. And they quickly find this baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. They go. And they find Jesus. And verse 17 says, When they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. The first people that they're able to tell is Joseph and Mary. You can imagine the conversation as they start trading stories. You guys aren't going to believe this. I know we're strangers, but it sounds crazy, but an angel appeared to us in the field. Joseph and Mary go, Really? What did he say? And they, they start comparing stories, and Mary goes, An angel appeared to me and said the same thing. 
Joseph goes, I was about to divorce my wife. I assumed that she'd been a faithful to me, but an angel appeared to me and told me the same thing. They're all comparing notes and realizing this is God's doing. And I'm not crazy. Other people are confirming it as well. They're sharing and swapping all these stories. And it's pretty amazing that that they're able to see that this is God at work. But it's not just Joseph and Mary. We're told that all who heard it marvel. Again, it's probably a crowded um, uh, area with all of these people traveling. They weren't alone. And so they're telling others as well. It says that all who heard it marveled. They wondered, verse 18, at what the shepherds told them. It's interesting. Their response is just like Zechariah's neighbors. When Zechariah comes out of the temple and he can't speak, they assume he must have seen a vision and they all marvel. When Zechariah names his son John instead of a family name, and then he bursts out with his prophetic song, all the neighbors marvel at what's going on. People are aware that something big is going on. But then we see a contrast that all of these people wonder. They're interested, they're intrigued, they're trying to figure it out. But it seems that they're still holding things at arm's length. But notice Mary's response. It says, but Mary, in contrast, she treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. She's reflecting on this. She's receiving all of this, internalizing everything that she's heard, everything that she's seen. You have to wonder if Mary, who pondered these things in her heart, if perhaps later she recalled some of these things when she watched her baby boy, all grown up, doing miracles, healing people and feeding thousands, remembering what the angel said, remembering the testimony of the shepherds, remembering the prophecies that he's the son of David and he came to save us from our sins. You have to wonder if she thought about this as Jesus preached and as he taught and as she connected the dots and connected the things that he was saying with those things she had pondered up in her heart. And you have to wonder if Mary, standing next to the cross, watching her son die, watching the hands and the feet that she had once held be pierced, as she watched the one that she had nurtured and fed and clothed and protected to see him naked and bleeding and dying, if she had these things that had been treasured up in her heart that she reflected on and pondered and meditated upon, he is the Christ. He is the Lord. He is our Savior And as heartbreaking as this is, this leads to salvation and joy and glory. You have to imagine that these things treasured up in Mary's heart is what she held on to at the end. So this is way more than a mom just going, aww. As she treasures these things in her heart, this is a deep consideration of Christ, not just as her son, but as her Savior and the meaning of his coming. She's not the only one who responds to all this. Look what the shepherds do in verse 20. As they return, they have to go back to work. They are glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. For the shepherds, this is a response of faith. They believe it all. Everything they've heard, everything they've seen, they praise God for it. They glorify God for it. They are moved by their faith to not only obedience, but also to worship. This is the natural expression of joy and gladness in the gracious gift of God that he sent his son to be our savior. This is what Zechariah did. He sang. This is what Mary did. She sang. And now after the angels sing, the shepherds get their turn and they are praising God, glorifying God for all of it. So the birth of Jesus brings all these different responses from the heart. Some wonder and they're sort of intrigued, but they hold it at arm's length. Mary internalizes, contemplates, and holds on to these things. And the shepherds publicly proclaim and praise God for what he's doing. That brings the question to us, what is your response? What will you do with this news that a Savior has been born today for you? And he is Christ. And he is Lord. This Savior comes 
from God, to fulfill God's promises, and, and to rescue you from your sins, to, to pour out upon you the, grace, the gracious favor of God so that you can have peace with the Father. The peace that Jesus comes to give is more than peace on earth in terms of peace with other people. It is peace that is experienced on earth as we finally have the enmity removed between us and God. That's what Jesus comes to bring. So will you be like the shepherds who believe and seek Jesus and tell others and rejoice? Will you be like Mary who treasures things up in her, these things up in her heart, holds on to them? Or will you be like those who are maybe interested and intrigued, but there is no response? My prayer is that you would hear this very familiar story about the birth of a Savior and take these things into your heart, receive them, that you would, like the shepherds, believe everything that you have heard and seen in this text, everything Luke records for us, and that this would lead to love and joy and worship. 1 Peter 1.8 says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Friends, that's what God wants. A joy that is inexpressible in us and filled with glory. Isn't it amazing how God weaves together the good news of the gospel, so that he gets all the glory and we get so much joy. That's what Christ comes to bring. So Luke 2 is not meant to be sentimentalized. This story deserves far more than to simply be the inspiration for some holiday decor. This is good news of great joy for all the people, and not just the people of Israel, but also a light to the Gentiles for all who will come and believe in Christ. It's good news that through Christ we can have peace, peace with God as our sins are forgiven. It's a gift of grace that communicates God's love for sinners like us. May we receive this grace through faith. May we ponder it in our hearts and rejoice with great joy as we give him all the glory. Father, we thank you for sending your son into the world to save us. We praise you, we marvel at the way you sovereignly directed history and wisely chose the precise and perfect timing to send your son into the world. We marvel at his humility, at the simplicity of his birth, and we recognize, Lord, the good news that through him comes salvation, and through him you are magnifying your glory in the earth. May we be those who receive and rejoice and worship. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.